when it comes to uh, Easter week, when we're growing up, this is the story that, like, the, the Christian merry-go-round comes out. You know what I mean? This is the piece of Easter week. Naughty here. Should I just hit it a couple times to make it more awkward? Should I do that? Okay. Perfect. I think we're good now. Good. This is the, this is the story that um, when you're growing up, like, it's a small world after all characters come out, right? Like, this is the piece of Easter week. Many of you guys know the story. Some of you guys will be learning this for the first time tonight. But the triumphal entry is the story that happens probably on Sunday when we're looking at the last week of Christ. And it's the story when I was growing up in our churches that people celebrated, that I never really understood the meaning. I never really saw what was happening. What I saw was a church celebrate the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. And I never really got what was happening. I never really saw it. And as I've been studying for this night, for this story, what I've realized is I grew up understanding it wrong, to be honest. I grew up with like the picture of it's the small world characters and everyone holding a balloon and everyone's welcoming in Jesus and completely missing everything. This is going to be horrible right here. narrative now which started in Luke chapter 9 as he was pointing towards Jerusalem he heads to Jerusalem and he knows the entire time that he's headed there to die tonight we're out of the travel narrative why because he's reached Jerusalem he's there my friends it is a day of destiny and isn't it going to be fun my friends to learn and to study the triumphal entry not in Easter week of the calendar year can I get an amen awesome so open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19 Verse uh, 28, if you're just joining us tonight, I want to welcome you to Matthias' live. Thanks for coming. It's great to have each and every one of you guys here. I hope that you feel welcomed and loved. We've been traveling through the Gospel of Luke, and tonight uh, you're here for a great night and a great opportunity for us to encounter Christ. Luke chapter 19, verse 28 says this. After Jesus had said this, uh, so call me Captain Obvious, but that means that we have to look back in the previous story to connect what just happened when it says, after Jesus had said this. Well, what did he just say? Let's look at the uplifting passage that he just said in verse 26. He replied, I tell you uh, that to everyone who has, more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. And this is what he uh, just said in verse 27. But those enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. So it's like one of those really like mediocre verses in the scriptures, right? Just kind of like, yeah, this is great passage. We remember, what, what was he teaching on? He was uh, teaching the parable of the ten minus from the perspective of a king. And what he was saying is, is anyone who hadn't been, uh, have, hadn't been good with the mina or the thing that had been given to them, then that shows that they need to be judged. And so obviously this is, in fact, in the person of Christ. And so it is an intense passage. Verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now, this is going to be uh, tough since I don't have, uh, but stay with me here. If I were to use my hands and just to show you guys really quick, it would actually be like this, okay? So just understand that. But here's the Temple Mount, okay? Many of you guys have heard of the Temple in Jerusalem. Just to the east of the Temple is the Mount of Olives, 
Okay, Jesus is going to be, and we're going to see here, in a village that's just on the east side of the Mount of Olives. He'll have to go up the Mount of Olives and down the Mount of Olives into, have some of you guys heard of the Kidron Valley? Now the Kidron Valley leads right up to the temple. And so when Jesus says, or when the scripture says that he's going up to Jerusalem, it's because the temple mount sits on a hill, right? Like this isn't, like the writers actually wrote geographically correct. Isn't that a blessing for us? Verse 29. As he approached uh, Bethpage and Bethany, uh, Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. So he reaches Bethany. Interesting that it's the, Bethany is the home two miles east of Jerusalem of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So this is a famous village just on the other side of the hill. You guys with me? Uh, and, he, and he sends two, two disciples ahead of him and he says to them this. And we don't know uh, who these disciples were. None of the gospels mentioned verse 30. Go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them the Lord needs it. Wouldn't that be great if we could always use that line, right? Like we could just, the Lord needs it, you know? Like, honey, I I swear, the Lord needs me to go to this, you know, the Batman, the Dark Knight movie. You know what I mean? Like, Like, yeah, yeah. But this is the words of Christ saying, go ahead, and there's going to be a colt that's never been ridden before, and bring this colt to me. Now, it's interesting to know. Can you guys uh, flip in your Bibles to Zechariah with me real quick? Um, it's just a few uh, chapters back. Zechariah, this is getting interesting here with my mic. Just uh, hang with me. Interesting to know, in Zechariah chapter 9, Scripture says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a what? On a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So in Zechariah, which, uh, mind you, is before the time of Jesus, there's prophecy about the coming king from Zion is going to ride on what? On a donkey on a colt. It's also interesting to note, my friends, that in Zechariah chapter 14, it says that that same king will take the passageway of the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is getting ready to fulfill prophecy, the prophecy that was talked about the king who would come into Jerusalem all the while a whole bunch of people want to kill him. Are you guys with me? Most times when we hear this passage, this is when the kids come out with the branches, right? Nothing against the kids and the branches. But this is the part where, like, everyone parades out, and we forget that these people want to kill him. Jerusalem, we know the rest of the story, is where he's going to die. So he's about ready to get on a cult, go up a mountain, go up to the temple, and die four days later. And I never learned that growing up. Like, we separated the Mount of Olives journey from Easter. Back to Luke. And so he's fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and and, and uh, this, is, this gets funny here. Verse 32. Those who were sent ahead uh, went and found it just as he had told them. It's as if Jesus like, has this greater understanding. You know what I mean? It's as if he knows what's happening in the future. I love that. right? So he, they find it just as he told them. Verse 33. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? <laughs> they replied, the Lord needs it. right? And they buy it. It's great. And this is awesome. Uh, verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, 
threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. Uh, now in Second Kings chapter 14, we see that to put uh, the cloaks on a king, and later we'll see them spread cloaks in front of the pathway of Jesus, that this was a sign of, of royalty. Any of you guys horse riders here? Any horse riders? Uh, okay, we got a few. They're all sitting together. Apparently you guys congregate. That's perfect. Uh, w- one thing, when you read deeper into this story, uh, w- what did it mention about the colt? That it was what? It had never been ridden. I'm not a coltologist, okay? But here's what I know. Is that, is that horse, like, if you want to train, like, you have to train donkey to ride them, right? Isn't this awesome? Like, gee, they, throw some, they throw some cloaks on it to act as a saddle, and then Jesus does his Savior thing, and all of a sudden, like, this thing is trained, right? And so Jesus, like, I, I don't, again, I don't know a whole lot about it, but i got to think that if you get on an untrained donkey, like, the thing's going to go crazy. Not for Jesus, right? There's benefits to being the Messiah, and this is one of them, okay? No. Some of you are jealous, right? Verse 36. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, and it was a sign that royalty is coming. So I need you guys to understand the image. For ten chapters, Jesus has been pointed into the direction of Jerusalem. And we've all been waiting. And in the meantime, he's been healing and teaching, performing miracles, casting out demons. And now he's there. The final journey on a cult that Zechariah 9 said would happen of the king. Verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all of the miracles they had seen. Now, I think the, the scripture gives us indication this is more than the twelve. So you have the 12 and then you have some other individuals that are called disciples here, namely followers of Christ. And they're all shouting in a loud voice, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. All right. Some of you guys know the Sandy Patty song, right? Some of you guys shouldn't. That's, you know, scarred you for life. Right. But but the song, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what does Luke add? Do you guys notice the, the phrase? Blessed is the what? Blessed is the king. He's, they're directly quoting Psalm chapter 118. But Luke and the individuals here add king to this famous psalm. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying this amidst a culture that wants to kill him. This is the tension of the triumphal, in quotation marks, entry. This is the tension that's happening and surrounding this moment. This is the tension they don't teach you in Sunday school. People are saying, you are the king, and there's some whole other people that are in the crowd that are thinking, he's not the king, and I want to kill him, and we'll see that here in a second. They continue their praise in verse 38. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. My friends, This is the claim of a bunch of people who believe that he is the king. So do you get the picture? Jesus on a colt and a whole bunch of people around celebrating, joyfully believing that this is the king. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees, which by the way, this will be the last mention of the Pharisees in the Gospel of Luke. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, Rebuke your disciples. 
How many of you guys have ever been to a parade before? Some of you guys have been to a parade? Let me try to put this in our terms. Albert Pujols, okay, comes to St. Charles, right? He's a celebrated St. Louis figure, right? I mean, I would pick like Carlos Zambrano or Derek Lee or something, but, but all right, let's go with Albert Pujols, all right? He's in a convertible. Like, have you guys all been to a parade? You guys get out of your cave? Okay, good. Parades, a lot of people. A lot of, they have donkeys there too, right? So there's a parade coming. Albert Pujols is in a convertible, a celebrated figure, right? And he's doing the pageant wave, and everyone's excited because St. Louis loves Albert Pujols. They herald him as God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And everyone's celebrating, and everyone's excited. Hey, do you see Albert Pujols in the convertible? Man, I, I, I didn't realize his guns were that big. Like, in person, he's so much hotter. You know what I mean? Like, you're going through the whole deal. And then randomly, some protesters come out in the middle of the parade. Everyone is celebrating, and like four or five random McGee's come out with some posters, like, we hate Albert, kill Albert, you know, like, can you imagine the awkwardness of that moment? You're, like, your kids are standing there, and you're all like celebrating, look, kids, it's Albert Pools, you know, and all of a sudden, a guy comes out and stops the car, and the entire parade starts, and you hear the ridicule of these people towards this celebrated St. Louis character. Awkward, eh? I was at a Skillet concert a few years ago at uh, Agape. Any Skillet fans here? Sweet on me. Perfect. Um, and Skillet, at the end of their concert, the guy was giving uh, uh, his testimony. Uh, thousands of people there sharing about what God has done in his life. All of a sudden, Random McGee in the crowd starts yelling at him. I mean, he's right in the middle of his testimony. And this guy standing right next to me just starts yelling at the guy on the stage with the microphone, right? And he just starts yelling at him about what he's sharing. And so you want to talk about awkward. Like all of a sudden you've got a guy who's trying to, just revealing his heart, telling people about Christ. And you've got a guy in the crowd who's, like if you, this is an awkward moment. You need to understand that this moment with the Pharisees and Jesus is is entirely awkward, and my friends, this moment is intense. This moment they don't teach you in Sunday school. The Pharisees come out, stop the parade, and tell Jesus, rebuke your disciples. What are they saying? Stop, tell them to stop telling you that you're king. What kind of parade is this? For people that portray it as the triumphal entry, and Jesus is on, on the colt, and everyone's just like doing their dance together, and then all no. Friends, this is a picture of tension. This journey to the Mount of Olives and to Jerusalem is intense. And the Pharisees say, rebuke them. Tell them that you're not the king. Tell them that you're not the Messiah. If you want to expedite your death, what you would do is you would respond to this in a very interesting way. And you already know that Jesus does. Look, look at this. This is awesome. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. <laughs> I mean, the, does, is anyone not smiling right now? He's on the cult. The, like the people, right? Like, like Albert Pujol saying something that pales in comparison to the Savior of the universe looking at the Pharisees. And in, in his great moment as God says, if they're quiet, then the stones will cry out which at first glance is a great emotional passage, isn't it? 
We're like literally picturing, picturing the stones crying out, and it's awesome. We're like, oh, man, what would that look like? Do you understand what he's saying to the Pharisees? You guys understand? He's saying that the stones understand it better than you do. If you want to expedite your death, that's the way you do it, right? If you've come to a journey to die, what you do is you tell the religious leaders of the day, the stones understand it more than you do. You know what I mean? Like this, my friends, is one of the most tension-filled moments in all of the Gospels. Jesus says, if they're quiet, the stones are going to cry out because creation will groan, creation will sing, the rocks will yell out because I am the King. All of the Gospel, everything building to this one moment as he enters in Jerusalem when he affirms to the Pharisees, I am the King. Do you guys understand this? If we miss this one moment in time, then everything else, it gets a little bit blurry. But everything builds. And he affirms it. No, no, no. They're not going to keep quiet because the stones will cry out because I am who I say that I am. Look at this. As he approached Jerusalem, and if you're like me, you're like, what? Like the conversation should have continued. You know what I mean? Like wouldn't that have been great? But it tells me that the Pharisees walked away. And you want to know what they thought in their minds at that point? He's dead. This is all we need. Now we will kill him. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Wait, wait, wait. This is the triumphal entry. Like Jesus shouldn't be crying. He's only cried at the death of Lazarus. Right? Remember Jesus wept? Your favorite memory verse? Right? Yeah. He's only cried a couple times in the scriptures. Right? So why now? Is this part of the triumphal entry? Should Jesus be crying over a city as he enters it as king? He's weeping? What kind of triumphal entry is this? Aren't you beginning to get the picture that they got the the title in our Bibles wrong? Right? It should be called like the tension entry or something more creative than that. I don't know. Look at this. And he said, if you, and he's talking about Jerusalem, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. In other words, like there's some of you right now that are getting it. I'm journeying to Jerusalem and some of you are praising me, but some of you could could care less. And some of you will crucify me, but every single one of you will respond. And now, because you're sitting where you are, it's been hidden from your eyes. Verse 43 The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you. This is in the triumphal entry. Embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Does this sound very triumphal, my friends? The Savior of the universe is weeping over a city that he's describing will be destroyed. In 80, 70, Emperor Titus from Rome comes into Jerusalem with battalion after battalion after troop after troop. Ethan, is that right? Oh, good. Just troop after troop just brings them all into the city. Listen to this. They tear down one wall. They tear down another wall. And they just sit and wait around the third wall. 
They cut off all food lines and all water lines to the entire town of Jerusalem. Listen to this. It got so dicey. They would let people come in for the Passover celebration, and then they wouldn't let them out. They wanted more. 1.1 million people died in three months' time. 1.1 million. They finally overtook the gate called Atonia. Some of you guys who have been to Jerusalem or will go to Jerusalem, you'll see this gate. They overtook it. And for those of you guys that know your history, they burn the city, including the temple, which is a major no-no, to the ground. It had already been done, listen to this, to the day. They burned down the temple just like King Nebi did. If you've seen VeggieTales, Nebuchadnezzar, right, in 586 B.C., the very same day, some 600 years later, the same day that Nebi burned it down, uh, uh, King Emperor uh, Titus burned it down as well. 1.1 million dead. Josephus writes. He was there, by the way. Some of you guys have heard of Josephus and you've learned about the writings of Josephus. He was one of the peace officers in between the two armies. Clearly it didn't go very well, right? 1.1 million dead, 97,000 others entrapped or enslaved. And Jesus says, it's because you don't recognize that I'm the king. This is the triumphal entry, Mark. This has a great ending, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. No, there's no great ending in this story. It's coming. But the ending of this story, the ending of his march to Jerusalem, is this is tension. This will rip people apart. This will be the thing, the cross that's coming will be the thing that forces people to respond to me. And in this day and in this crowd, some praised, hands lifted high, voices yelling at the top of their lungs. Some were careless. They just stood there because Jesus was like an Albert Pujols figure in today's day and age as he comes down the parade and be like, oh, they're interested. And other people in the same crowd crucified. So if you're like me, you're like, so what does this mean for me? What does studying the triumphal entry in a completely different way have anything to do with my life? The tension still exists. the relational tension that you experience at work because some of those who you know do not know Jesus still exists. Some praise. Some are careless. And others want to crucify. They're there. In this room, quite possibly the same tension. On your campus, the same tension. We experience, my friends, the same tension as a triumphal entry that Jesus takes. We see it. It's around us. And he shows us what to do in those tense moments. In those moments where you feel like you have nowhere to turn. In those moments when you feel like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, every, like, I'm just so confused right now. There's some that are with me. There's others that are against me. I don't know what to do. Jesus shows us what to do. You keep journeying on. You stay in your obedience. And in Jesus' case, he heads to the cross. And nothing denies that. Nothing distracts that. He continues to plow ahead. Tension or no tension. And I fear that for many of us, the tension has caused us to fear the tension and not the God who created it.
And that, my friends, is a dangerous place to be. When we begin to fear the relational friction, the religious friction, the cultural friction, when we fear it, instead of seeing it as a God-given opportunity to see Him and His will and His grace and His faithfulness revealed more. The tension, my friends, is what should thrust us to the foot of the cross and not cause us as Christians to sit back on our heels. It's the tension that should cause us to see His grace all the more. It's the tension, my friends, that should revel in the forgiveness that the cross gives. It's the tension that should cause you and I to sit back and look at a story like the triumphal entry and say, praise be to God. For if they're kept quiet, the stones will cry out. They can't keep us quiet, friends. The culture and the world and your friends who don't know Jesus, no more. They can't take the tension and think that somehow it's going to ruin our walk with Christ. Church, I want to challenge each of us tonight in a moment of heart broken, heart-meddled repentance to say, Jesus, thank you for the tension. Thank you for the chaos that should thrust us to your feet saying, we need you, O oh God. So my friends, fear it no more. Your great God who went on before you and now lives within you, that's the promise of Christianity and the promise of relationship with Christ is in you and the power accessible to take the same journey of obedience. And when we fail, he puts us on his shoulders, sitting on that donkey. And friends, this is the piece of Luke that shows us the greatest picture of the kingdom. I don't know much about uh, Roman emperors or old army emperors, but I know this. When you come into a city and you're getting ready to take on your kingdom, it's normally a celebration. Normally when you come in, and I feel like this is why our culture struggles with this story. Normally when you think of a king coming into a city, you think of you know, the happy-go-lucky and the celebrative moments and everyone's excited. And in this case, our king enters a city that will reject him, that will crucify him, that will say hideous things about him. And what does it say to us? It tells us that he's not just king of Jerusalem, my friends. That he wasn't coming to be a king of a city. And for a Gentile writer, Luke, writing to a Gentile man, Theophilus, this is huge. He wasn't coming to be king of a city or a nation. He was coming to sit on his throne, like Philippians chapter 2 says, at the right hand of God the Father, reigning and ruling over everything. That was the journey to Jerusalem. It wasn't to overtake or to conquer or to celebrate in a city. It was to die a death and to live a life, to sit at the right hand of the throne of God, to rule and reign and be sovereign over it all. And that's the promise of Christ. And that's the promise of the tension. And so may we here tonight say, God, thank you for the times relationally when it gets tough and when I don't know what to say. And God, thank you for the times when it's difficult to be obedient. And God, thank you for the times when, when, when spiritually I just feel like I'm in a dry time because those are the times that should thrust us to the foot of the cross in dependence 
of a great God who went on ahead of us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the journey that you took. A day of destiny in which you would begin to fulfill the prophecy of your death and of your resurrection. And I pray, God, that for once in this story, we'll celebrate the tension because it revealed your great plan. It showed your great power. It unveiled your great sovereignty. Father, I pray tonight that you'll call each of us to a greater grasp of your love.